Hi, and welcome to Song Divers, an interview podcast about singer-songwriters. We like to go deep in conversation with our favorite musicians in search of honest answers. What are the ingredients of a great song? What makes a songwriter tick? Can a musician make a living these days? Is Jason Isbell overrated? What? My name is Stefan. And this is Ed. And today's guest is a gifted instrumentalist, producer, and composer who follows his bliss into some fascinating projects. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeremy Douglas. pianist Jeremy Douglas playing a concerto theme he's writing for an upcoming production of Laura Gunderson's play Silent Sky by St. Petersburg's American Stage Theater Company. And at the top of the show, we heard his off-the-cuff take on our own Song Divers theme song. Was it ragtime or jazz or blues? Basically, I played one pass of the theme for him on guitar, and he got busy morphing it through the magical style blender that is the mind of Jeremy Douglas. So less than a minute into our show, and you've already heard enough clues to know that this guy's mastery can encompass the lyrical, the whimsical, the adventurous, the unexpected, and that he's not going to stay in one genre for too long, because he's too curious and too inventive and too thirsty for shiny new ideas to ever let that happen. In a nutshell, Jeremy's all about erasing barriers. Barriers between musical styles, between musicians, between performer and audience, any barriers that limit our conceptions about what music should be. Technically, he's our first non-songwriting guest, but he's also one of the most intensely creative artists we've had on the show to date. A producer, a composer, a sideman, a band leader, any project that he lends his generous talents to is immediately elevated by Jeremy's Midas touch. We are grateful to Jeremy Douglas for letting us peer into his quirky, agile, and open mind. Jeremy, we're really excited to have you here, man. Thanks. So we always start everybody with, tell us where you're from. I'm from here. I mean, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, but we moved here when I was four, so uh, maybe three. It does, so it doesn't count. Uh-huh. I and in the we that you moved with? My, my parents. Okay. And my sister. You are... An extremely gifted piano player, oh, so I thanks. imagine you started early. I was 15. Oh, wow. That's much later than I expected. Yeah, I started when I was 15. I was going to uh, a uh, Pentecostal Christian school in, in Largo. and um, but uh, At 15? At 15. I was under the impression you went to Gibbs High I did. School for the I, performing arts. I did. So okay. in, the, in the beginning of my sophomore year, I started going with my mom to the Unitarian Church on, uh, in, up in Clearwater, the Octagon Arts Center now. Um, and That's a little bit of a shift from Pentecostal to... Yeah, it was a really strange time to be Jeremy Douglas uh, you know, during the week in the Pentecostal Christian School. And then at the Unitarian Church on Sundays, it was 
it, it was interesting. Uh, and I was in the youth group there, and there was a girl in the youth group that I that became my girlfriend, my first serious girlfriend, mm-hmm. and she went to PCCA. Okay. And I had coincidentally... That's the Pinellas County Center, Center for, for the, the Arts. Arts. At Gibbs yeah. High School, yeah. And, and like, coincidentally, at that time, I, I had just... Um, I had been sort of like quietly by myself finding the piano at the school and going in there and playing and not knowing what I was doing and just sort of like re- I remembered where middle C was when I from when I took lessons when I was 8 mm-hmm. or 10 I don't remember I that's all I remembered from my lessons was this is there's middle C and so um from that I would sneak into the fellowship hall at the Christian school and the piano they had there and I would just like that sounds neat when you play it with that, you know. So when did you start to formally, like, learn more about... Well, I, I, I realized early on that I had a good ear for repeating stuff that I had heard. I could find it. Mm-hmm. I could remember it. I had a long memory for long phrases. It was not an issue for me to sit down and try to figure out a piece of music from beginning to end. I was able to focus on it and remember it, commit it to memory, convert it into physical movement. Mm-hmm. And what kind of things would you have been trying to, um, to like reproduce? Like popular songs on the radio. Like, or like Give uh, us an example. Uh, Welcome to the Jungle oh, yeah. was right around that time, you know, that when that <laughs> album came out. That yeah. I I learned a lot. I, I oh, Welcome. <laughs> I'm thinking Bungle in the Jungle no, by no, Jethro no. Tull. I'm what? talking Guns N' Roses. Yeah, Guns N Roses. Yeah, uh, Guns N Appetite Ro- for Destruction. Yes. When that album came out, it was right around the time that I was like really learning songs, mm-hmm. playing. So I learned that I, I learned that whole album on the piano. We lived right behind the school hmm. that I went to, the Pentecostal school. So I'm going to the Unitarian Church on Sundays, and I'm in the youth group, and there was a girl in the youth group that I, I really liked, and she became my girlfriend, and she went to PCCA. She's a flute player. And so that was the motivation for me to go ahead and take everything that I had done on my own and try to learn a piece that is good enough to audition for that school. So I had a friend of my mom's taught me uh, a Chopin nocturne. I learned it without without, uh, reading any of the music. I couldn't read. So she just showed me, here's what it looks like in your hands. And then I, I just copied her movement. And she taught me three pieces like that to audition. And so I went auditioned, and they let me in. So luckily they didn't you know, require you to sight read anything. You just kind of like... Well, I showed up, I guess, and I was like, hey, I can already do most of this stuff, but I can't read. Can you help me? And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, we can help you. Come to the school. And that's where you got it? Yeah. The reading no. knowledge? No. No, I avoided it at all costs. Mm-hmm. I kind of resisted all of that mm-hmm. it's it's only now in the past five six years that i've really uh started reading that's kind of interesting because when i you know you and i have a history that goes back maybe maybe 10 years yeah and during that time um we'll talk about later like the some of the stuff we've done together like the florida Bee orchestra yeah like some of the things you were doing I actually felt like, oh, Jeremy can read music. Like, he's a real musician where I felt kind of like, oh. like can I hang with this guy? Oh, like, my God. You should see. So so when we did, before the Florida Bear Orchestra, we did that Wizard of Oz show, mm-hmm. which I just reprised a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, Let's give a little bit of background on that so yeah. people know what we're talking about. Okay. So, so um, 
my wife, Rebecca Zapin, wanted to do a show where she sang all the songs from Wizard of Oz. And, uh, and she asked me if I would help uh, chart it for, for the musicians. It was a small combo jazz show. It was going to be jazz arrangements of Wizard of Oz. She'd sing for Dorothy. We needed, like, we, we needed somebody to come in and sing for the lion. And so we called Meyer Barron, who was working with this band called the Chicken Chasers at the time. And uh, he just seemed like the perfect fit for it, and he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I called you because I had just been started working with you at Ditch Flyers, and I'm like, hey, I need like a ten man or a scarecrow, or you know, like I, I need another person to pull off some of these other parts. And he volunteered, so that's when I gave him Glenda. Also, and since I just I don't have much of a brain, it was a no brainer. The scarecrow, <laughs> it was a natural fit. Anyway, that was a lot of fun. Making those charts. It was a lot of fun to do also. Yeah. Rehearse and perform. Yeah. And we did that at the Hideaway Cafe. We did it at the Hideaway, and then we did it. And it was, I should say, well-reviewed, well-attended. People loved it. Everybody came. And it's it sort of started a thing. It did. And that's when Paul Wilborn at the Palladium said, why don't you come do that show at the Palladium? Um, and for people listening, you know, you've heard us talk about the Hideaway a lot here in St. Petersburg. But the Palladium, we've mentioned a few times, too, another historic, beautiful, awesome venue uh, that's here in our I, town as well. I can't say enough amazing things about the Palladium. I'll go in great detail if you want me to, but yeah, there. Paul, Paul Wilborn is a. Uh, there, there's nobody like him in this town. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's invaluable. He's precious. So anyway, we went to the Palladium and we did that show. All this to say is the charts that I wrote for that show were my best guess at what charts should look like for people, and so. You know, over the years doing Florida Beer Orchestra, getting better at writing charts, but I never really realized how bad those charts were. Mm-hmm. So when we went to do this Wizard of Oz show again, I'm like, oh, that'll be easy. I'll just pull out all those old charts, and I don't have to do anything. We'll just read a, read the same charts we did six, seven years ago, and they're terrible, Un- <laughs> unusable. Like I was embarrassed. Like I can't believe I handed these charts to people. So you know, playing with musicians in that group that did know how to read that that did have that experience that I didn't have and me handed them my charts I you know at the time I was blissfully ignorant like oh yeah this is how it goes here's this piece of paper and I look at them now and they're just misery I can't believe they survived I can't believe we pulled that show off but yeah that started uh, my that relationship with Paul where he invited us to come do that show kind of sparked a, a an idea that to do you know shows like that make them bigger and bigger and mm-hmm. bigger you know to create a not so much a band. And you, you, talk, you talked about Paul a little bit, but that's that's kind of his modus operandi. He'll because I've had a relationship with him too. Like you'll go have coffee and you'll talk about what kind of shows you could do. Yeah, and, and he's kind of on board with almost anything you throw at him. Paul, like, yeah, Paul you know. is like there, there's like people that support the arts. You know, like I believe in you. You know. Uh, here's here's maybe a little bit of money for funding for a project, and that's all really great. But but Paul has a stage, you know. Mm-hmm. Paul Paul can offer something that nobody else in this town can offer, which is that theater, and there's not another one like it in St. Petersburg. And it's it's the credibility of it. It's uh-huh. people. It has uh, people know what to expect when they come there. We actually talked about this on our last episode, but you know that idea that people will go to a venue because they trust the venue. Mm-hmm. It's having a band in versus you only go when a band you like is there. Right. You know? Right. So, you know, partnership, like what I have with the Palladium and Paul is sort of like a, like a partnership where it's they, they underwrite these shows. And the, the, the assumption is um, 
I can do whatever I want in that space, whatever. I don't need to clear it with anybody. If it sells tickets, I can keep doing it. Well, and I think, so to get back to Ed's original question, so you guys do this Wizard of Oz show, yeah. and it picks up some serious buzz here in this community, and it starts to grow, and then you formally sort of created this group that is almost like this Ocean's Eleven sort of, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. it's, it's all these hired guns that are really talented in their own right, in their own spaces that yep. you bring together for this, you know, superstar, all-star cast to do these really interesting projects that are under the name... The Florida Bee Orchestra. Yeah, I have a. I, I'm. 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 I'm fortunate. You know, I'm, I'm lucky. I have my own independent miniature orchestra that does whatever I want. And it expands. It contracts depending on the shows. Yep. Yep. And everybody in it is a vibrant independent artist of their own who lends their time to me. I pay them, obviously. I mean, that's my. That's the. That's the biggest achievement I think that I've done so far is be able to create a, a like Buffy Fest. The second one, probably thirty five artists on stage. We should say too, Ed Ed is one of the performers, regular That's performer right. in the Florida yeah. Orchestra as well, which is part of how we know Jeremy. We know Jeremy from his work in the community. Obviously, um, Ed and Jeremy are also good friends, and that's because Jeremy was part of the Ditch Flowers. Mm-hmm. His performs with Ed. Um, and so you guys are doing projects off and on together. So we should note that too. That yeah, you're going to notice a rapport here. Ed and I know each other. Yeah, let's but. let's rewind just a little bit. Okay, because um, this kind of to the origins of the, of the Florida Bee Orchestra right. and the name and whatnot. Because another project you and I were involved in was a tribute band, right? <laughs> a paying gig. Yeah, and we'd be driving around the state of Florida to different gigs, and oftentimes in the boredom and long hours and miles. You would spin out ideas for bands, right. like, "Hey, I got an idea for a band. It'll be called Polkadelic. <laughs> we'll do the music of Funkadelic Polka style." Yeah, yeah, like, Pol- yeah. Uh, yeah. Or my uh, bluegrass '80s uh, metal band '80s metal cover, you know, like uh, called Ban Jovi. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. when you, when you first called me. About the Florida Bee Orchestra, yeah, I thought it was another one of those. It, it, it and was, I, and it I'm totally like, was. Haha, Jeremy, I'm busy. Like, you know, yeah. I'll talk to you later. Well, and, and but it the, turned out to be a thing, right? right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. talk a little bit about the the first show and how the genesis of of that band and, and the name and everything. Oh, I just you know, ever since I was a kid, my my fantasy was not to really to ever be like the star, but to be. To, to play the music with the artists that I love, to play their music with them. Like, what would it be like to be in Bjork's band? Mm-hmm. You know, how amazing would that be? I never wanted to be somebody like her, you know, the central figure of a, of a project. I, I just wanted to know what it felt like to play with Peter Gabriel's band. Mm-hmm. Like, that's always been my dream. Mm. So I just created situations where, where uh, you know, if if I get people that are that are good enough, I mean there are world class musicians in this town. Mm-hmm. Every single one of the people in the floor orchestra, I believe, is a world class musician. That's part of the show, right? Is, yeah. is finding a, and not just here in St. Pete or not just in Florida and or Southeast, but as we have musicians come through, you know, that's a big piece of it. Is there's people that are every bit as good, if not better, than the people that yeah. everybody knows everywhere. They just yeah. haven't found their freaks yet, as we say. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like my uh, like one of the trombone players in the Bjorkstra, David Hope. He was just playing the with the Who for two shows. A couple other 
orchestras too, I think. Austin Vickery like, uh, was in yeah. the horn section for Seal when they came through town. My wife, Rebecca Zapin, was in the string section for the Indigo Girls and for ELO when they come to town. Mm-hmm. I mean, these bands that are like my, you know, that are artists that I love, They this is how they tour mm-hmm. when they have large ensembles. They hire local musicians for the town that they're in. Mm-hmm. So if I can put an army together of those local musicians who are good enough and qualified enough to play with my favorite artists, because obviously they are, because they're being hired by them when they come to town, then I can create a situation that sounds pretty similar to what it might be to be at a Peter Gabriel concert. One thing you that know? I think is, is kind of interesting to go back to the the very first, the genesis of this group. Mm-hmm. It's more than a group, really. It's no, become it's, a lifestyle. Yeah, it's, it's more than a band. It's yeah, the, yeah, it's not a band. The Fort <laughs> Orchestra, I don't really think of it as a band. It's, yeah, I think of it as like a collective. Like but a, it's, uh, or, or like an improv group or like that mm-hmm. sort of same type of thing that people... A theater company. Exactly, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the... so, uh, And for people who are familiar with Bjork's music, mm-hmm. she's kind of like... She straddles, to me, the line between pop and artsy, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, in as far as production and instrumentation, a lot of it is electronic mm-hmm. layers of, of music. So f- your idea was to transcribe pretty faithfully, at least for some of those songs, like all of those electronic beeps and boops and yep. layers into more traditional organic instruments like horn and mm-hmm. violin and so forth. Yep. And then, uh, so that was really the genesis of the yeah, it was project. A, it was an it was an exercise for me. Mm-hmm. Like it was an experiment to to uh, tra- yeah, what you said, just translate all that electronic stuff into an acoustic ensemble. And you had Jamie Perlo. Was she one of your PCCA yeah. friends? We went to okay. school together. Yeah, some of, some of the uh, Bjorkestrans. Bjorkestrans. Go back for you. Go back to your your peeps. Yeah, Larue La Nicholson, Jamie Perlo, uh, Colleen Cherry was in. PCCA, but different time for me. But mm-hmm. there's, I think there's four or five PCCA alumni. And Jamie and Colleen both are like fantastic. Yeah, Bjorkster couldn't exist without Jamie. It's not possible. There's nobody else in town that I that could have sung that stuff. Well, I, th- I think it's important to, you know, talking about Bjork, for example, influence is such an interesting thing, right? We haven't had any guests on. They're like, oh, I really like Bjork, you know? Mm-hmm. And we haven't had anybody yeah. mention ELO or any of the, you know, Talk a little bit about, you know, take us from growing up, being in your household, what music was around. You just mentioned Guns N' Roses earlier. And then now, like, take that forward sort of into, because we are getting into where you're at now. Take us through your musical influences a little bit and how that's influenced what you wanted to do. I mean, were your parents listening to music? Was anybody in your household musical? No. My grandma was musical. She played piano, but she played, you know, stuff like The Entertainer and... Mm -hmm. And she would play for me, and that I think that was a big influence. I never like never had a moment where I'd watch her play piano and be like, I want to do that. But I think it just created a situation, like an environment where I understood that the piano was a thing that people played. Mm-hmm. You know, we lived in my grandma's house, and she would play it, mm-hmm. and so it was a normal thing. Um, when I first started listening to music, it was movie soundtracks, um, and uh, and then it was um, just whatever was on pop radio at the time. You know back when I was too young to really form my own decisions about what was being played around me. And then when I was able to start making choices, I, I bought, you know, Guns N' Roses records, Pearl Jam and, you know, getting into high school. And and then it was jazz for, you know, when I got into PCCA and they tapped me to be in the jazz program, I just, that's, that's when I discovered jazz. And were you, were you using jazz to study or 
Or like you're listening to jazz and you started to like. I'm I started this. to love it. I yeah. wanted to unlock it. I wanted to understand it. And and yeah, so I uh, I started listening to jazz as sort of um, uh, a, another puzzle to try to figure out, you know. And I had instructors to help me, but yeah, it's a big giant puzzle, and it's it's like how do you want to put that puzzle together? That's your sound, you know. Uh, so were I, you like and at that time were you and Larue already friends? Like Larue were you was, doing classes together? Yeah, we were we were so. in jazz combo together. But Larue Larue was like uh, we should say he's a gifted uh, jazz guitarist who is also in the area here in Tampa Bay area. Like, yeah, when right around the time that we were graduating high school and everybody moving on to other stuff, it was clear that Larue had basically just devoted twenty four hours a day to practice. It was clear to us. We saw it like. One day we all went to LaRue's house and we're like, he's like, ah, I've been working on this thing. And our jaws just dropped like, where did you learn how to do that? Just last month you were playing Jimi Hendrix songs. And this, uh, you know, he just took off. And I think that that's just motivation and dedication. Mm-hmm. He just focused on that 100%. And it shows. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. so I, I, I listened to jazz and I, I struggled with jazz. And, and then I, I, I more and more struggled with anxiety about jazz. Uh, and and anxiety Ooh, about jazz anxiety. Oh, don't it's, I know? It's serious. Uh, <laughs> and and anxiety about the jazz community. I think it kind of pushed me away from jazz a little bit. Is it anxiety because of the the demands of the form itself, or because of? Uh, um, um, I, I guess you know it, it could be my own biased filter that I'm looking through. I don't know that this is entirely accurate, but mm. I, I've. I've commiserated with people who've felt the same way, so I don't think that I'm alone. But the the, the jazz community, by and large, is made up of extremely wonderful, nice people. They're they're all really great individually, as a group. Mm-hmm. It's a very judgmental place, okay. you know. And so when you're at a gig and you're playing jazz, chances are, I mean, jazz is a wonderful art form, and I love it. But your audience, most of the time, when you're playing jazz, are going to be other jazz musicians, and then mm-hmm. you get lost in this feedback loop where you're really only playing music to impress other people in the field, mm-hmm. and you lose track of how to connect with an audience. I don't think jazz really makes a wonderful emotional connection with audiences anymore. I think it's an art form, and it's a it's a technical art form that is rewarding to to discover and uncover all those layers but the practical aspect of you know playing it to me was just anxiety i'm being judged mm-hmm. by people who were like i could do that better you know or i heard that lick before <laughs> he keeps doing that why does he keep doing that and that so that's what's in my head while i'm playing it like i would i, just, un- I would understand I just, that from my personal perspective because that's kind of how I think I would feel, but it's interesting to hear you say that. And and I could be making some very wild assumptions that, that people would hate me for, but I don't think that even if I'm playing a jazz show to an audience of non-jazz musicians, I don't think the emotional connection is, is as strong as if you were playing, say, um, you know, something from a musical mm-hmm. that, that, you know, is emotive and has, you know, expresses the human condition. Jazz just doesn't do it. One, because it's instrumental, you know. So I don't believe that audiences really connect with instrumental music the same way they connect with vocal music. It's just Even the instrumental uh, aspect of, say, a pop song, though, mm-hmm. I feel like it's more carefully crafted, too. Yep. 
elicit right. certain emotions. And know. jazz and jazz vocalists can are, are very emotional, mm-hmm. you know, artists. And so I'm not here to downplay all of jazz as an emotionless art form. Mm-hmm. I'm saying my experience with it was not as profoundly emotional as it is as it was, say, when I played uh, when I've done any number of musicals or mm-hmm. any one of these other kinds of music that's not jazz. I feel the emotional connection with the audience is stronger mm-hmm. for me. So I connect with jazz on a technical and anxi- anxious level. I just mean anxious and know that I know that I'm not going to be the player that that someone like LaRue is. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to devote the time to it. Uh, and, I uh, love to hear what you do, though. Whenever I, and, and I'm not the biggest jazz head in the world, but right. when, when I'm hearing you guys you know, trade licks and stuff, I love what you're doing just as much as what whatever Lou is doing or yeah. Daniel Navarro or it's difficult you know. to I guess I I mean I do love jazz I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that I hate I guess I feel the same way about jazz that I feel about Star Wars mm-hmm. you, you know I love it except for this problem and this problem and, and this <laughs> this retcon well, thing are we talking about plot and holes wait, wait, here? yeah and like Lake Leia is Luke's sister but they kissed or, you right. know, that doesn't make any <laughs> see now but, but I, like but so I could I could go on and on about all the things that I hate about Star Wars but then somebody would be like then why do you like it and because it's Star so, Wars so, right. so yeah. I feel about jazz blues so many of the things similar to the way I well, will use Star Wars right like or Indiana Jones movies. Right, generally, like, it's Indiana Jones. Yeah. Most people think the recent one wasn't any good, but I'm like, it's still Harrison Ford doing his it, thing. Yeah, right. So I, I feel, to me, very much. You take three musicians, you put them in the room, you give them the exact same music, they all play it. One of them is going to just approach it differently, mm-hmm. and like they just have the touch. And for me, when I've heard your stuff, you've got the touch. Like you get it in a way that a lot of other players don't. And I, and I can think of some of the best known artists in the area or musicians in the area that just I don't connect with. Like mm-hmm. I can acknowledge that they are objectively great players, but they just are not saying anything to me. Sure. There's other players out there that maybe aren't as advanced um, that do. And then you have people like you that have the vocabulary and you're able to use it in a way that is not regurgitated. I think. You know, I think that's a really important thing that I want to know, which is part of, again, part of the reason that you're here to, uh, with us today. I, and I think one of the things I want to definitely come back to also, one of the reasons that there's going to be some listeners probably at this point in the show being like, this is awesome. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but the criteria I'm used to with you guys as a singer songwriter in the show. So part of the reason Jeremy's here is because you are a songwriter. Like you are composing in a way that we haven't talked to people about before and mm-hmm. certainly your own compositions, which I think we should definitely talk about. But, you're reimagining other things and composing things for, um, you know, for theater, um, for your own projects, the Bjorkestra projects. You're reimagining how things should be orchestrated. So I think that let's talk a little bit about that piece of it where you're taking it from I'm hearing music, I'm learning it and figuring it out on the piano to now I'm actually orchestrating and I am composing. Um, and start to talk a little bit about that that part of your psyche musically. Uh, well, I've... I- I wanted to be a songwriter, and I felt the same way about songwriting that I felt about jazz. You know, it made me anxious. I, I, you know, I guess I just have an, an issue with being judged by other musicians. I wish we could all just support each other, and I think maybe we do, but in my mind, we don't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found that my my strengths were not in songwriting. I didn't really create ever create anything that met for my own standards. Mm-hmm. So um, rather than chase it and feel anxious about it and have that relationship with it, I just sort of left it. And I feel much better 
uh, helping other people craft a sound than I do crafting the song. I like to take the song and and help bring it to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think that's I, I recognize that's where my strengths are. Well, right. you've done that partially in, in on gigs with you know, and I guess we should say that you've had gigs in many different genres and yeah. realms. You've been in rock bands and you've supported singer songwriters and yeah. jazz outfits and the orchestra. Like you, you can pretty much handle any style. But when you talk about helping a, a songwriter, um, one that comes to mind for me is Cassandra Rose. Mm-hmm. And you've done production work for her. Yeah. She has an EP uh, called More Than I, and I did that with her. And she has a full-length album called Out of Thin Air, which I also did with her. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the process behind that? Because Cassandra, if you go to a club to see her, typically it's Cassandra and her guitar. Yeah, Cassandra is developing a live sound that is different from the records that we've made, mm-hmm. and which I think is wonderful. It just it's, it shows versatility. She's not she's she you know it's like she's not expecting to go and recreate live what we did in the studio. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could. It's right. a studio album. I don't, you know, you'd need an orchestra to play it live. Uh, but, um, yeah, because that was a really wonderful, uh, fortunate thing for both of us, I think. I found myself working with her where she trusted my instincts. Mm-hmm. I had enormous creative freedom in that project. So when you started that with her, did, did she bring recorded tracks to you yes demos and stuff that okay. she had made guitar and voice guitar and voice and okay. so my the idea was i was been a, i was going to be phil Spector. can we uh take one of her tracks and kind of give give a listen and sure have you which comment one is, on, which one is it this one's called out of thin air yeah so this one is interesting in that she i think she was just going to throw that one away she um, told me that. And, and again, Cassandra is she's a, a great female singer songwriter yeah. um, based in this area, but you know known everywhere. And um, actually, I think we're going to have her on soon, which we're pretty excited about. So if you guys mm-hmm. listening don't know her, go look her up. Oh, um, yeah. Get get to know her, and if not, you'll get to know her soon through us. I'm yeah. going to queue up this the recording of that song, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about it. Sure. And if you want to give any commentary, as it's. Uh... Oh, it's slow play out. You're playing all the parts here? Except that part. Right. That's not your voice? No.
so not to talk over Cassandra too much. But that's full production. I mean, you've got drums, yeah. percussion, strings. Yeah. And I do hear the, you know, we went into your jazz background but and, and from Guns N' Roses to jazz. But uh, the other thing, when I think of Jeremy, I think of your love for progressive rock. Yeah. Like Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush. Yeah. And, uh, and movie soundtracks. And movie soundtracks. This almost has like a garbage feel to it, like like the uh, Bond tune that they did. You mm-hmm. know, it's got this very cinematic. Yeah, the, it's funny. Cassandra and I talked about how it does. It sounds like it could be a Bond theme, especially at the end. Which gets, I mean is a compliment. At the end, I started stealing some of that John Barry harmony from 007 Anyway, oh. so you'll you'll hear it. You'll hear the influence as it gets in the end. It's funny that you picked it out. This is real sexy. Yeah, you're hearing there that. You're hearing that one little note in there. That's- yeah, you're, toward the end there, you're changing the harmony in the chord progression. Yeah, there's that little diminished note you add in there. What's what are you what are you doing there? It's like in the fourth chord. Well, we're in, in the G, G minor, G minor seven, G minor six, and then this sort of like E flat major seven. But right. Yes. Yeah. You've got an E flat minor, and yeah, it's it kind of like. It's that space where chords are incongruous, but then they're mm-hmm. they're not because they're tied together by common tones. It's really cool because you're adding a little extra. It's already a lot of tension in that song. Yeah, and uh, you're yes. kind of like ratcheting oh, yeah. up the tension a little yep. more there. Yeah, just change to some so. harmony where it's you know for it's it's not where the vocal is, so it doesn't clash. It just sort of recontextualizes it briefly. Mm-hmm. It feels incongruous. It feels like you're your uh it just shifts there slightly it's it's a subtle shift mm-hmm. it's kind of I, I don't know the the feeling is ominous but yeah definitely i saw your head kind of go dramatic. what is I did it. what yeah. is that yeah. note? that's a new note yeah and then that sort of lives in that space there where 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 the producer you, you know makes creative decisions right. that doesn't alter necessarily the melody. I tried out to make cha- choices that make Cassandra change her song, 
No, I you think know, it was artfully done the way you. Yeah, where she comes at the song, she's like, "I've got this, these lyrics, mm-hmm. this melody, and and sort of this basic movement for harmony underneath it." She mm-hmm. might have chords. With that one, she didn't have chords. She just had this sort of movement that did that. And it just repeats that over again. Did she do that on acoustic? Uh, I think she did that. I think she used uh, li- uh, loops and garage okay. band. So she creates a song, and 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 I'm not going to make assumptions for what her process is, but I'm I'm I will say maybe she doesn't flesh it all out because she knows that'll happen in the production. Mm-hmm. You know, so she approaches it as um, what does she want to say lyrically. And what does she want her melody to be? And I take those things for the most part as, you know, sacred. Those are not to be altered. Mm-hmm. So my job is to, is to fit, you know, fit that. There have been a couple of times where I said, hey, if we did change this one note in the melody, just, uh, just a half step, if you, it, it, it would be, you know, it'd be great. <laughs> I don't know. It's like you know, there's so many more possibilities if we were to just change a slight note. I, there, there's so many places I could take it from there. If we is did she that. on board with doing that kind of a change? Too, sometimes in general, sometimes like- yes, sometimes no. You know, and and so yeah. in that situation, that, that I work for her. Thing. Well, I think you know, we Cassandra and I have a personal relationship. We've been friends for I've probably known her for 15 years, mm-hmm. maybe more. So I. I I think she's comfortable with me enough at this point to say, I don't like that. Don't do that. Well, that's important. I think, you know, uh, James and I and Trevor, you know, we had on from Emerald City Guitars several episodes ago, but they talked about how important it is to have curated a good feedback loop, right? Yep. Somebody some, who will tell you that's not good or I don't like that or maybe try something else. So that's important. Right. But I think when I was making the comment of that's scary, I think as a songwriter, if you have a song and I imagine that song, and again, we'll ask her, but hearing that, like, she probably wrote that and was like, I really like this a lot. And then if all of a sudden you come back and show her something else, it's like, here's something totally off the rails, different, or something that will allow it to really expand somewhere else. Now all of a sudden you have a decision to make as a songwriter. Yeah. Do I stay with this thing I really loved? But crap, I really like this other thing too. Ugh, now do I cram them together or do I turn them into separate things? Like, well, we so do. That That's the great thing, thing about if you have a relationship with somebody that you trust enough to pay attention to something that they're offering that, uh-huh. that would be worthwhile, but also having enough confidence in yourself to say, no, we need to stick. With yeah. It. And I'm trying to be careful not to railroad anybody's creative decisions to fit mine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's something I'm conscious of. Even when I'm suggesting changes to their original concept, it's a suggestion mm-hmm. not here. I, I work for you songwriter person, you know, and that, and that's a sort of un really sort of undefinable space that a producer lives in where, I mean, we all know that Nirvana wouldn't have sound the way Nirvana sound without that producer. How much of that sound is his sound, mm-hmm. right? So I hear, I, I follow producers. I like more than mm-hmm. I follow artists. Like I like like that album that Robbie Robertson did. His very first Daniel Lanois, Daniel right? Lanois. He re, you he too. Did, he did the uh, mm-hmm. so Joshua Dan, Tree. So that's a really interesting album to me. It's one of my favorite albums in the world. That's Robbie Robertson's first solo album, produced by Daniel Lanois. Right at the same time that he was producing So for mm-hmm. Peter Gabriel and Joshua Tree, right. they all came out in the same 
I want to say he was really hot for those couple of years. Like, (laughs) and so that Robbie Robertson album sounds like Peter Gabriel and you two got together and collaborated on a record that Robbie Robertson sang lead vocals for. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like a little bit of Peter Gabriel, a little bit of you two, a little bit of the band, Mm -hmm. and all that is Daniel Lenoir. All of that sound is him. Yeah, it's interesting though. Some producers like uh, can have a completely different role. And they're really there letting the whatever sounds happen from the musicians and the engineer crafting that. Yeah. They're just kind of there to, okay, that was a good performance, or I think you can do better. Right. Or like piecing together the song, you know, the, the collection of songs that you're going to attack. Yeah. And it's a much looser thing where they're just kind of overseeing, you know, mm-hmm. so you have different roles that a producer can play. Right. Well, well, you know, from, from quality control all the way up to let me change your entire sound and create, yes. your, create your image for you. Because exactly. if you think, I mean, I, you know, Lenoir is also, I mean, Lou Harris, I think he's done a Brandon Flowers album, you yep. know, uh, Willie Nelson, I think at some point. Neville too. Brothers. Right. Mm-hmm. So in, I don't know that you, like, you may sit down because you said you follow producers a little more. And I, like, I can tell. But you take a guy like um, you know Dan Auerbach, who has a very signature sound, and he is informing the record sound, so you know when he's done one of those records. And, mm-hmm. and I think, too, if you're expecting that as a listener, I really like it, personally. That, that's the guy from the Black Keys, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah yes. because, because Dr. John's album that was done by the Black Keys sounds like a badass Black Keys Black album Keys. with Dr. John exactly. singing. Yeah. singing it. You know, and it's the same thing with... you know. Um, Ray LaMontagne, you know, he he did Ray LaMontagne. I think uh, Supernova was the record a couple records ago, and that was a Dan Auerbach production, and it's a totally different sound. But you, it sounds like you know Ray singing over this really cool Black Keys record. Yeah, and and a lot of that is like you know for a producer their their signature things are what compressors are they using, mm-hmm. which reverb plugins do they like the best, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. The, those choices, the, the equipment is part of their sound, and they and they have equipment that they prefer. Right. So a lot of times... And, you, and you're recording hearing, engineers that they like to work with. Yeah, so a lot of times you're hearing, you're hearing the equipment crossover between artists, too, right. because the producer likes to use this Neve console. And now, a quick interlude about one of the companies supporting this podcast. Ed, I think we can both agree that the best tasting songs are those that happen naturally. That's true. Wait, you can't really taste a song, though. That part's not... That's also true of the food we choose to consume, which is why our favorite new artist on the healthy protein charts is ButcherBox. 100% grass-fed beef delivered on dry ice to your door anywhere in the lower 48. So, does that make Alaska like the upper... Ed, just open the box. If you're into more genres than just beef, ButcherBox has you covered. They also deliver Alaskan wild sockeye salmon, free-range organic chicken. Wow, there's got to be like 11 pounds of meat in here. Heritage breed pork and special bacon. Special bacon? Special because it's free. Use code SONGDIVERS at checkout to get $20 off and free bacon in your first butcher box. And shipping's free too. Special bacon and special shipping. That's special. Now, can you grill as well as you can play guitar? Visit ButcherBox.com to order. Let's go back to the history of the Bee Orchestra because it does feed into uh, becoming a, sort of a, a residency at the Palladium yeah. and how it grew into something bigger. Initially, like the first Bee Orchestra show we did at the Hideaway Cafe, yeah. and there were like 13 or 14 people 12, yeah. on that stage, that little stage. Right. And then once we moved over to the 
Palladium, you started introducing other artists. Well, I, the first show we did Radiohead. Radio, like we did Radio a, Ed. Radio Ed as a duo. You and I opened the show, just yeah. two of us. But So then you started introducing other artists into the mix right. um, to do more shows with this collective. So talk a little bit about how that developed. Well, it was sort of like, you know, Paul said, come play the show at the Palladium. I'll give you X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, okay, I can, that means I can afford to pay X amount of people X amount each. And so I hired from my friends, you know, as many musicians as I could afford to give a decent check for for that show. And it's not to put words in your mouth, but also it's interesting because we're talking about all the different gigs you've done from rock bands to jazz. Right. All of these people you're inviting into the orchestra, they're coming from different worlds, you know, different genres, different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Like Ronnie D's, you know, got his his funk project and and. Uh, most of my horn guys are steeped in the wedding band gigs. Most of my string players are steeped in the other side of wedding gigs with ceremonies and not receptions. Uh, you know, I, I generally, you know, like the, I, it's like I think of the, I think of it as sort of like um, that scene in Fight Club where they they hogtie that dude in the bathroom. You remember? <laughs> and he was like, he was like, we park your cars. We, you know, we clean your houses. <laughs> Do not f- with us. You know that guy. So I'm like the orchestra Illuminati. Yeah. And so in the orchestra, I'm like, we play in your wedding band. <laughs> We're on your radio. We're at your club gigs at night. Do not, you know. Uh, so. We're the we're the organ guy when you walk by in the mall. Exactly, you know. So, so this thing we're kinda, everywhere. This thing kind of grows not only in size but in repertoire. Yeah, and, and a lot of this is you're you're bringing in some of your favorite music and thinking, oh, this would be cool to hear these people do this piece of music. Mm-hmm. And I guess we should say also to give people context who don't know the physicality of these venues, like the we went from the Hideaway Cafe, which seats around a hundred, maxed out at a hundred. Yeah, and then we're going over to the Palladium Theater in St. Pete, which is more like an eight hundred. Well, the side door. Our first show was in the side door. Which is first two shows between 150 and 200 212 seats, 200 212 yeah um, so our first two shows were in the side door and we crammed that stage filled with musicians mm-hmm. I think when we did our second side door show which was Peter Gabriel and Tori Amos and this is like the downstairs it's like a little cabaret atmosphere yeah. Yeah. In, inside the, the theater but it's it's yeah below. yeah so that Peter Gabriel Tori Amos show was four background vocalists three horns three strings six-piece rhythm section so that's a lot of people to put on that small stage and then they were just like just just go upstairs and then you kind of outgrew the, the yeah. basement so then we went upstairs where we had enough where we had enough seats for everybody mm-hmm. so when we we did uh uh, upstairs, we did our first show upstairs was Bowie and Bjork, and we had a much larger band for that. I had four strings, five horns, uh, six, five or five or six vocalists, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then when we got to when we got to Madonna and George Michael, I got the choir. Yeah, you invited <laughs> the choir. What, what's the the name of that choir? They're uh, based in one, Tampa. One City Chorus. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a really, really see. That was a that was a that was a really fortunate connection that I made there. What's that song? Freedom is that what Freedom the Ni- George Michael set? We Freedom the, ninety. 
Freedom 90. Yeah, it's got the whole background choir. It was glorious to have a choir singing yeah, on that. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, and that was a really fortunate situation because I never went to school to learn how to do any of this stuff. I am making it all up as I go along. I have not, at that point, I did not yet have any skills to talk to vocalists, mm-hmm. to be a vocal director. You know, somebody needs to take lead on that. Somebody has to organize. Here's where you start singing. But, you know, here's where you breathe. Mm-hmm. Here's how we're going to tackle this consonant so we're all together on the same consonant so we don't have, you know, mm-hmm. down a line of six people all saying there's CK at the different times. You know, you, you need somebody in there to organize all of that thinking. Um, and I had no skill for that. So, you know, uh, I. But you've I, got the choir director from. Uh, I got the choir director from One City Chorus to do yeah. it. And mm-hmm. I put made myself. I put myself in a position in those rehearsals to not run the rehearsals. Mm-hmm. I, I, the director, John Arterton, he worked with me on the arrangements for the vocal parts. We did five songs with that choir. One of them was Somebody to Love by Queen. Oh, which, man. You know, it's like, so, you know, in talking with him, like, how are we going to approach this? He, you know, and our thinking was for ease of practices. So we don't have to practice this every day for a month to get it right. Let's do three parts. For all of these songs we can get away with three parts um so i would work on my best guess three-part arrangement for a choir and then send him to john and he was so gracious i can't express like who does this kind of thing D- donated his time to red pen my arrangements and send them back to me with like suggested changes and then when he saw my best guess at like sort of distilling what's clearly five and six part harmony on somebody to love down to three. Mm-hmm. He was like, we better, we, I think for this one, we need five, at least five parts. <laughs> so let's, let's go back and redraw somebody to love or, you know, for, for five parts of vocals. And then he ran the rehearsals. I think I, another interesting thing from my perspective is just being part of the Florida Bureau Orchestra is just when we do these shows and it's going to be all 25 of us yeah. upstairs in the palladium. Yeah. That all the rehearsals, everything is done in sections. Right. So I'm with my, you know, my peeps are typically LaRue, Nicholson, and Lance on drums or Trixie on bass, you know, whoever's in the rhythm section. We're doing our rehearsals. Separate. With you. There's five or six of us in the room. Right. And the same thing. The strings are doing a separate rehearsal. Some of the stuff we end up performing for these shows, we're not all doing yeah, we're here. The whole piece until the actual performance. Yeah, we hear a lot of it for the first time all together at the same time the audience does. Yeah. Which is kind of exciting. It's scary. Uh, I don't know if that's the best practice. <laughs> it's not the best practice, but no. considering the alternatives. It's the constraints of the. Uh, right. Yeah. When I think it's important to, and people are going to hear it in the stuff that we're playing, and, and as you play some more here for us in a second, but again just speaking to the level of musicianship that is expected from the palladium stage right Right. i mean the symphony performs there ballet performs there you've guys like frank turner coming through soon like you know it's it's a venue it's a it's a yeah so you know there's a prestige and 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 that motivates a lot of people to do their best and i think that generally you know the the musicians that i work with in that band they just do their best as their default position right Mm -hmm. you know they're not picking and choosing when they're going to give 100 percent. they just that's just how they operate there's no considering giving less than their best when i think this is an interesting segue into another piece is that you make your living as a musician and i to my knowledge you have for a long time Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting to tell listeners too about the diverse 
things that you've done to make a living as a musician, right? Because yeah. you're playing on cruise ships, you're part of these symphonic orchestras, you're doing stuff for scores, you're you yeah. know, and you're collaborating. I, I think that's a really interesting piece that we don't get the chance to ask a lot of people because they do one or two specific things. Right. Yeah. yeah kind of concurrently with the Bjorkester rise, you're also doing things with American Stage and yeah. Stras Center. Yeah. And, my uh, my whole career theater. My whole career this year looks completely different than it did. La- even last year, or mm-hmm. or definitely five years ago, I've always been a a, a performer, like a gig performer, um, top forty bands and, and wedding bands, work you know five nights a week. But I I I just don't I I I just kind of hate that now. <laughs> I just hate those gigs. I love those people, but I just hate the whole process of like it's physical labor. You know, and I'm just getting to a point in my life where I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a 55, 60 year old man loading my keyboard for the millionth time into a club. Sorry, we made you bring your keyboard today. Yeah, no, I'm. This is different. I'm kidding. But, but like, I, I, I feel like you know that that is like, I don't know, some people that that works for them, but that's not a. That that's not a situation that I'm going to be comfortable with into old age. Well, I, w- I would also venture to say most of them probably aren't either. But right. but creating a situation for yourself where you do have all these musical opportunities that you have, and I, let's call it a luxury that you don't have to do that. Like that's a that's a thing, and I think that's part of that secret sauce, or just even just unpacking how you got there is important for people because everybody would like to be at that situation probably and that you need the right blend of opportunity of skill yeah right um, you have to also be able to play with other people yeah. you know if you're going to collaborate on stuff you have to people have to be able to work with you right and and i think um and all those things are super important i think the oh, the umbrella that i all fit under is just open-mindedness willingness to adjust what your uh idea of success is yeah um there's three things that people have said to me in my life that have changed everything that came after. The first one was this guy, a saxophone player named Dave Cotton, local guy. Mm-hmm. I was playing a gig. I was maybe eight, 19. I was playing a gig at the Yellow Fin on Madeira Beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember griping to the drummer after a set that Dave Cotton played on top of my solo. And, <laughs> and then and feeling 100% justified in my gripe. <laughs> And then I remember how I heard how that got back to Dave Cotton, and his response to it was, "When is he not soloing?" And that changed that changed everything for me. Mm-hmm. I suddenly, you know, I was like, "Oh shit!" So, so real quick, and remember the next <laughs> two. But I he's do not want, wrong. I want know? to pause for listeners yeah. that are not musical people. Like, if you're not in a band or you're not somebody that's really in this, and you're listening to this show because you enjoy the stories and you enjoy the people. To set that up for you, there's a thing called being in the pocket, right? Yeah. And it, if you have a band and everybody's soloing, which people do at some point, it's awful. It's a really, really terrible thing, right? Yeah. Three Stooges effect. Everybody trying to go through a door and you all get stuck. Right. right? And ideally, it's something that you graduate from. You learn your, from your mistakes and you leave that behind. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I so I think that's go, important. To go along with that, I think you get to a point where you kind of start to focus more on listening to the rest of the band the complete sound that you are a part of and right? it doesn't Not mean that you of. remove things that are specific to your instrument or it doesn't mean you remove your take on a part it just means you're playing in a way that is more cohesive and collaborative and pulled back 
so that you're not the one up front on the stage and everybody dancing. Yeah, in front, collaborative you know? is the key word there. I think it's sort of like you know learning that the world does not revolve around you. Right, that you are a part of it. And you are not the lead character in the story of the world. Maybe I would have learned it another time, a different lesson. But I'm like really, really grateful for that really snide remark from Dave Cotton. <laughs> he was not wrong. He wasn't wrong. And, and I recognize that. And, and I changed how I thought about music from that moment on. What are the other two uh, uh, you were going to mention? Another one was um, uh, with my wife at our accountant when we were doing our taxes together for the first time we had just gotten married. That's romantic. And yeah, and the accountant was like, oh, you guys are both musicians. Did you ever want to be famous? And, and my wife was like, would you ask that question to a mechanic? <laughs> like, like some people just like there's uh, some people just want to support a family. Like, do you, would you say would you want to be the most famous limo driver, <laughs> you know, or the most famous like guy that works at a gas station? It's just a job, you know. It's just this is my skill, and my my wife had a completely different concept of success than I did at the time, and mm-hmm. I was still letting go of some of these old ideas that I'm so great everybody's going to hire me to go play in their band and I'm going to tour the world with Peter Gabriel letting go of that it's not really practical you know you need to focus on what you can actually do and my wife put that in perspective to me she wasn't even talking to me but (laughs) you know it's like so so the first time was I readjusted my position in the story of what was happening. I'm not the lead character. The second time was I readjusted my my idea of what success was. It's okay to be to 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 just work to raise your kids and feed them. It's fine to do that as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third time was Mark Feynman, the drummer, when we were at a, a jazz rehearsal, and uh, he. I don't remember exactly what, how it came up, but we, we talked about the stigma of jazz musicians playing rock and roll gigs to get by. I think we were talking briefly about how in Japan it's the, it's the opposite, that the rock and roll musicians need to take jazz gigs to survive. The, the, the culture is just so more attuned to jazz that that's where people make money. This is a real thing? At the time that I was in Japan, briefly, it was a real thing. That was what I was hearing from musicians there. That's that fascinating. They, that they got to take jazz gigs to to pay the bills, and I, I just it it just blew me away. But Mark Feynman was like, you know, people ask me what kind of music do I play, and Mark Feynman again, he's a fantastic drummer. Uh, it's also I don't know if he still is, but at one point he was the president of the Al Downing Jazz Society here locally. He he's 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 amazing, um, and his his whole response to just sort of like this settling as a jazz musician by playing other music was like you know forget all that i just play music you know and that reoriented me i don't have to be a jazz musician i don't have to be uh a top 40 musician i'm just i can just play music and i think to to evolve that further you found a lot of different things to do uh, outside of just those top 40 gigs obviously we've talked to the orchestra i think the other one that's really interesting to mention is the improv group right so the improv group is yeah that's a that's a that's something i've been doing for the past year and a half maybe um you want to explain just quickly what well, it is well yeah well um that is uh we create a musical um we, on the spot on the spot we improvise an entire narrative one act musical um from what's the, the name of that outfit definitely not murderers <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, he's not answering that as in, well, it's not called Murderers. It's called 
definitely, definitely not. not yeah, then we are definitely not murderers. Um, and, and that didn't the name come from one of your improvised? Uh, yeah, one of our players, Christian. He has the he has a knack for just cutting straight in in these improv shows, cutting straight to the heart of something. And we were doing a musical about a. Uh, a, a murder in a grocery store, I think. And it was like the first scene. And there's two guys walk on stage. The, the you know, it's just starting. It's like, hey, what are you? What, are, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I'm definitely not the murderer. <laughs> you know? So uh, that's how we got that name. Um, that is uh, that is a result of my journey into theater, which is a something I've been doing since the Bjorkers was started. I'm sort of moving away from performing in clubs and weddings, which I still do sometimes when people offer it to me. But and to be clear, not acting. You're specifically writing for theater, musically writing for theater. Uh, that is happening too. Yeah, there's. I I started as uh, my my first time working in the with theater people was um, professionally was with Jobside Theater. We did a musical uh, called Lizzie. Which was about a rock and roll musical about Lizzie Borden, mm-hmm. and I was just I, I was just hooked. The whole thing that that was transformative. That whole experience in the theater, um, a group of people come together for a short amount of time and collaborate on on one project, and it they they bring it to the stage and then they finish it and it's done and you move on and. It was so sad after that was over, the last show that we played for Lizzie, and I walked up to my friend Jonathan Harrison, who is uh, another local guy around town who works with Jobsite a lot, and I'm like, man, I'm so sad that this is over. And he's like, yeah, but that's why there's the next one. And so, yeah, it just started me down this road of chasing that feeling over and over again. I love that environment. Mm-hmm. I love theater people. They're amazing. And I'm, and there's, a, there's so much to learn from from how they structure their 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 rehearsals, from how they structure just the company itself, that I'm I'm stealing all of that stuff right now for the orchestra. Well, and I think you know you talk about essentially gratification through music, right? And music, and I'll say acting too, probably, um, well, certainly, it's one of those art forms or skilled type of things that like you're giving so much to each other in that that give and take is so much of a, you know, in music, it's an audible dance that you're doing, but that gratification of achieving what you're ultimately setting out to do Mm -hmm. with these other people and being able to enjoy that gratification as a group, like that's, it it takes the singularity out of being a musician and puts it in that group context. It's so rewarding also. It is, it is. And, and, you know, I'm kicking myself for chasing these other things and not chasing musical theater from the beginning. It's so re- it's so much more rewarding for me than any than any jazz gig or any gig I've ever done, and and it, it's precisely because of the collaboration, but also because it's it's all of the art forms, it's all of them, it's not just music, it's dance, it's costume, it's set design, it's it's writing, it's every single art form rolled into one, all working together. Well, it goes back to your definition of success, right? And if again, if we ask a lot of the people we have on here, big national acts to the, the localist of the local, right? Mm-hmm. Their definition of their dream of success is playing to a small room of people that care about what they're doing, yep. right? So the idea of just this massive musical success and playing to this audience that is almost white noise, and believe me, I would love to do that, but 
But in terms of what you'd want to do on a day to day, playing to a room of people that cares about the product yep. and doing it with people that care about it, like that lends validity, that lends absolutely joy and appreciation and connectivity and all the things that make being an artistic human great. Yeah, I have zero desire anymore to step on a stage with you know thousands of people in the audience. It's just, I mean, it might be fun, but I'm not chasing it. To me, is it is it for you partly when you're in a you know even two or three hundred seat venue or even eight hundred at the palladium, you just feel the you feel the group more. Yeah. It's more intimate. Yeah. Even though there's a lot of people in that audience, you yeah. it feels more like a process you're in together. Right. Like, and and a lot of the Bjorkster is set up to be that even in ways that aren't like readily like super obvious like like we don't record shows mm-hmm. you know we don't videotape them it's an event it's an that event you're that doing ha- together with the audience you're kind of making it happen it happens together. it happens yeah. one time right now it happens one time it happens for the people in that room and if you want to see it you need to show up i'm mm-hmm. not gonna i'm not gonna offer that try to offer that feeling in a video to other people you mm-hmm. know i want people to come and experience the event with us because in the room a lot of us most like we said earlier most of us in the band are experiencing it for the first time too but mm-hmm. that's so important i can think of you know one of my favorite artists Nora jones i love Nora jones yeah. um, and she's a phenomenal live performer and her takes on her own tunes and her band's excellent last time she was at ruth eckerd the audience was not a good audience for her they were not being uh polite i will say like and they loved her but they were just like they weren't behaving as you would expect an audience to behave and it was definitely throwing her off you know and she was doing her best to vibe and but like you could tell it came through in her performance and and i think that's important that to the point we made earlier you guys are doing this for the first time you're also loving it you're having a great time and that comes through in the performance yeah the most recent one that you guys did was uh nick drake and joni mitchell yeah which was so cool especially if if you if you don't know either of them to have sat there and seen Two really different musicians played like that, also incredible. But if you know those musicians, you know, to get to hear Nick Drake play back and see that level of excitement, which you wouldn't have even gotten from Nick because he was such a manic depressive. Right. Um, it, it's, it, and it was so singular to that evening. You, you, can't, you can't capture and bottle that anyway. You have to be there for it. And that has that musical theater component. Yep. So let's talk. Let's go back to definitely not murderers. I'm yes, gonna that's get what into I'm that. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit about the process of that. You're you're making an entire musical up on the spot. You're improvising. So we uh, we have eight, anywhere between six and twelve people in the group right now. But maybe for a show we'll do six or seven folks mm-hmm. and and me on the piano. We take a, a a suggestion from the audience and that gets shifted around sometimes like how we grab that suggestion it's just it's just basically the small idea that we can use to jump off of we we play a one-act musical scenes into songs and and it's a game that we play with each other um where we are sending each other invisible clues um to keep us all together it is uh it's it's basically um the equivalent of like everybody grasping hands together and then closing your eyes and jumping off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Like you, you just don't let go of everybody's hand. And you know, uh, it's so much fun. So it, for me, it's, it's making songs and, and it's, a and it's, I've learned quite a bit about song construction, mm-hmm. uh, how chords go together, how to change the key and how to modulate without throwing off my the vocalist sort of tonal center too much because they they're singing it. 
it's it's hard to describe as a vocalist because I'm not one. But the, they're singing songs that haven't been written yet to accompaniment they've never heard before. Right? <laughs> it's such a leap of faith. And um, so my job is to not break the trust. Right? Mm-hmm. So, but also to keep it interesting for an audience. And uh, so there's it's it's been this process for me of finding that ratio of 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 expected to unexpected for an audience to be interested also mm-hmm. but then balancing that with the expected unexpected to get a good performance from a vocalist so we've got like two scales if you can picture two scales smaller scales sitting on the on a larger scale you know turn. that's a lot of balance it's a russian doll situation or like maybe like or maybe like instead of having tra- instead of trying to back up with one trailer behind you put a trailer on the back of that trailer mm-hmm. right and you know how you have to like yes. turn your car one way to, so now you work two trailers in reverse that's what it feels like it's tricky it's very tricky <laughs> uh, but um the the singers they are amazing and these are creators. some of your musical theater friends who have had experience improvising right not necessarily in a musical context, right? But just being comedy improv, right? Being on and stage keep in or... mind, we're not inventing the art form. It's been around right. for quite some time, I and mean, mm-hmm. we've all seen like we've all seen it like in its game form, which is like would be short, what they call short form, mm-hmm. little tiny games that you would see on whose line is it anyway? Whose line sure. is it, when they're yeah. singing a song and they're making up lyrics, mm-hmm. um, that's what that's short form. Right. And what we're doing is long form, which is much more complex, and it, it's not just about creating the lyrics. And the song and in having it make sense for the character, it's also about creating the overarching story that, you know, over the hour that we're going to be on stage, a narrative arc, a song that makes sense in the narrative arc, mm-hmm. you know, how to reveal information, who is our protagonist, who's our antagonist, what's the sort of event that gets them at each other's, in each other's way. Is there a way to prepare for any of this yeah we rehearse we rehearse every week but how do you like prepare it's it's mainly sort of um you do workouts basically yeah yeah team building group think you're strengthening that that muscle yeah for for anyone that's seen improv you get it um but certainly improv when you you get down to the nuts and bolts of it and they explain it depending on the improv groups you go see and i'm sure you guys do too Mm -hmm. but you talk about the fact that there is a logistical structured strategy to how you approach these games and and how you do it but all the more impressive for it right and and a lot of it can be sort of whittled down to if this then this yes mm-hmm. yes it's it is very there's an arithmetic to it yeah and so like with song structure um i'm going to begin something i have no idea where we're going until somebody opens their mouth and begins to sing now i can recognize because i've worked with that singer a bunch i know that what they're singing is a chorus it's mm-hmm. not a verse mm-hmm. so if we if the song begins with a chorus, then we move to verse one. Right. Right. So um, if we go into verse one, then we move to verse two or we move to chorus or we move to bridge. If we're moving to bridge, we're in a really short opening song. So that's kind of let's you know? just unpack that just a little bit, because what distinguishes a chorus from a from a verse? Would you uh, say? For us, it's a very clear distinction. The chorus proves the verse true. Mm hmm. So a chorus, would you say, is more of an overarching, repeating kind of a theme? The chorus is a is a is a statement or a question that is informed by that that is 
the proof for the uh, how do you say it the question the the verse creates a maybe a question not mm-hmm. an actual literal question it's with a question mark but it creates a question it, in it the, creates an if an if, like a <coughs> In the chorus, a fork in the road, right? So maybe the verse is is how I feel, and the chorus is how we all feel. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the verse is every day, every single day, this thing happens to me, and the the chorus is how I feel about this thing happening to me every day. Mm-hmm. And the bridge, typically for us, is a completely different perspective on the thing that we're just hearing about. Maybe it's an entirely different character that comes on and says. Every day, this happens to me instead, you know, and that's our bridge. Mm-hmm. Is your life going to be in danger for revealing these secrets? No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, we teach this in music, uh, in music improv classes now. I'm doing classes at American Stage, teaching this to students. Well, so speaking of teaching, I think one thing I'd like you to teach us about. So Ed mentioned the dice uh, die that are here earlier. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sorry. I thought that see. was part of definitely not murderers. But it's, it's something that grew out of that. It grew out of definitely so, not murderers. So we have a box here of well, Jeremy, you can explain it. But there's a if you, if you've seen Stranger Things, you may be familiar with the die from Dungeons and Dragons, right? Uh, so, but there's a whole litany of other so, game mechanisms in here. A bunch of light bulbs went on in my head when I started working with these guys at American Stage. They're geniuses and they're singers and and actors. I I I I can't say enough how amazing they are. And when I came across them as a group of people that had skills that I had never imagined before, like I seriously had not imagined somebody creating lyrics, melody, choreography to a company they'd never heard. It just never occurred to me. I didn't live in that world. So I started doing it and I'm like, oh, these are magical unicorns that actually exist. There's so much that I could do with that. So I created a game. I created another game, um, which is based off of Dungeons and Dragons dice rolling and um the the idea of the game is that we take all the aspects of a live musical performance what key are we in uh what what song style is it how fast are we playing what are the chord changes uh who's singing what are they singing about Uh, how how loud how soft are we playing um all those are now independent variables independent of each other and we roll one at a time to determine what each one is at the top of a set. So let's say we roll... It's like Mad Libs for music. It's, it's Mad Libs for music. Let's do, let's do one. Well, so, you know, let's roll the dice for, um, for, for the key. If you can grab one of those 12-sided dice. We use a 12-sided dice. That's a 100-sided dice. That's, Holy, come on, Ed. Look at the chart on top. You'll see there's like a little chart that shows you where the key uh, dice are. Okay, chord changes? Key. So key. this is key. 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 Yeah. So grab one of those. It's check, a, check the Instagram for this show. You'll see You'll see this. Our buddy Dave's okay. here shooting yeah. this one. So that's a 12-sided 12 12 sides, yeah. 12 sided die. So right. C is 1, B is 12. What Five. Is, so C, C sharp, D, D sharp, E. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. We're in the key of E. We're in the key of E. Key of E. I like E. What All are right. we going to roll next? Uh, roll for um, uh, chord changes. So grab four of those dice. Those are eight-sided dice. We'll use the Nashville number system. <laughs> okay, so... So roll four of those. And just yeah. put them together in any order. Okay, one, two, six, seven. One, so... Oh, Right? So there's the one, and there's the two, F-sharp minor. C sharp minor for the six and for the seven. Let's use the dominant instead of the major seven. 
denatural. Well, obviously. So, so that's our. So you've already set us up chord changes, and you set us up a key. Um, now set us up a song style. I don't have the chart for that, so we'll just pretend that you're going to roll. Uh, what are you going to roll there for song style? The twenty sided die. So, yeah. but for so for this just one, make something up. well, for this one, I've got a whole chart. Like one is it, roll, roll it for me because I might remember some of them. What is that? Three. So that's bossa nova on our chart. Oh yeah, okay. bossa nova. So we've set. So now at the beginning of the of the show, I've I've set up. We're playing a bossa nova song. Okay. Right. So. is we would to continue setting this up we would roll for vocalist so everybody all of my vocalists in role play this is the name of this project role play they all wear numbers right um so let's say we rolled a number one for singer and that we got ed Mm -hmm. so ed is the ed is on deck and so now you're going to roll um the the story cubes they're the dice with the pictures on them so roll two of those now, story cubes are dice that I bought for my son when he was young. They're like six-sided dice. What does that look like, Dave? We got a smiley face and a lock. Okay, so they're six-sided dice with little clip art pictures on them. The idea for these story cubes was you, you roll them and you tell your kid a bedtime story based on these images. Okay. Right? So we got a smiley face and a lock. So that is your, that is your suggestion for your lyrical content. Everything else is up to you. Your melody... How you're going to interpret smiley face and lock, you could put that together in any way that you want. I'm, you know, I lock my door and I'm happy. I don't know. I'm not the guy that does that. So how, how do you know when the story wraps up? Well, what we do is we set it all up at the beginning of the set. Um, and then we start playing. And then about every 20 seconds, somebody comes up and rolls one aspect. Somebody in the audience. Somebody in the audience comes up and will roll... Uh, while we're in the middle of playing, uh, roll for a new key. And so then we modulate to that new key oh, Insta- wow. instantly at the moment of the roll. <laughs> um, roll for a new tempo. So I got those two 100-sided dice, so like the balls, the big spheres. Mm-hmm. Roll those and add them together to create a tempo. <laughs> Are you When you say create a tempo, beats per minute? Yeah. Yeah, so roll Sorry. those two dice, and and they don't really roll, so just sort of like move them around in your hand on the table, you know? So you have an accountant on stage with you also. <laughs> yeah, we have to do some math. So, so take those two dice. Like it's 194. 194 is our beach. That's, that's, that's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. So let's, try, let's re-roll that to something that sounds better. <laughs> Eight, usually these rolls average out anywhere yeah, 30, between. 38. That is super slow. That's super slow. So you can see it can get it can get really funny, you know. Oh yeah. There's one time we got a we got a, a tempo change roll and it was like 17, <laughs> and it, it just becomes you're just playing in the time signature of one. <laughs> it almost doesn't exist it at just, all. Yeah, it's it like, just yeah, stops being a song. And it just everybody becomes, lays down. Yeah. So th- that's the idea. Um, and then what we do every 20 seconds, we we change one aspect of it. Switch out the singer. Switch out the lyrics, change the key, change the chord changes, 
new song style. And then there's other things in there for, for solos. So everybody in the band also wears a number. So if a solo gets rolled, you know, roll the three, that's the horn player. He's wearing a three, so he takes a solo instantly. So I realize for our listeners, we've gotten pretty technical. But I think that the takeaway here is that there are mechanisms, obviously, that are being used to create this improv. So right. the best thing to do is just go see it. Yeah, it'd be hard to show you here because it's you know it's a full band and stuff. But the idea is, in in in, in most improv, the idea is we take a suggestion from the audience to prove that we have not prepared this in advance. Mm-hmm. It's our it's our proof that we're doing this on the spot, and so this is just that multiplied by nine. I don't know. Um, it, it, it breaks down everything that goes into playing music live in an ensemble into variable bits that the audience then controls. And when he says nine, there's nine components, so different types, different layers to the game here. Right, right. And so what, a, what a, an audience member will come up to keep it specifically random, they'll come up and they'll do two roles. The first role will be to determine which one of these musical categories they're going to change. Mm-hmm. So that's randomized. So they come up and they roll a dice and they go, you got tempo. And so then pick up the tempo dice, roll for a new tempo, and then we change it. And somebody comes up and rolls again. You got vocalist. So roll a new dice up, number two. And then we bring up vocalist number two, and they switch out. And they have to keep singing about the same. Everything else has to stay the same. Nothing changes. Mm -hmm. So if we start in the key of E, and we're doing bossa nova, everything about that, the tempo, the key, the song style, all has to stay the same, and somebody comes up and changes the tempo. We're let's, still in a bossa nova. We're still in the key of E. We're still playing those chords. We're just going to change let's tempo. Let's do a little more. All right. Let's, uh, so I'm going to re-roll. Re-roll for a new key. So get that 12-sided die. 11. So that's the key of B flat. Ooh. And then we're going we're gonna to do some chord changes here. Okay. Um, five, six. Six. I'm gonna re-roll seven eight five six seven eight. So, okay. Most of the time we use like the the dominant seven, not the major seven, because the main. We could do that, but you can't really make a rock show. It's a little soulful. Yeah. Okay, and the song style is eight. Oh, we'll just make up a song style for that then. Because I don't have the chart, so what, what does eight mean to you? Soul. Soul. And should we improvise? Roll the story dice. What is that? I don't even know I what think it's that a building. Is. A building and a magnet. Okay. I was walking down Fifth Avenue. Never seen before. Hey, isn't that where the diner used to be? Why they take that diner away here for? So I walked into the building. I didn't know my way around. I tried to leave that building. But I was stuck to the ground I couldn't move I was magnetized I was 
magnetized, stuck in a building. What is this building? I'm in a vortex. I'm stuck in this building. Magnet and a building. That's what it said on the, on the dice. I'm stuck in this song. <laughs> and we could have changed keys. We yep. could have re-rolled the So at that point, uh, we probably already rolled twice. Mm-hmm. And changed two different things about that. The tempo, the chord changes, the, the, the key that we're in, the vocalist. Hopefully, hopefully it's somebody like with a little more imagination. Yeah, just anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> Literally any other adult. <laughs> that's awesome, Jeremy. So that's that's the idea behind role play. Um, it's just a game that we like. I'm trying to find ways to play games with audiences, where the audience you break down that sort of barrier between stage and audience. Again, you can see why your accountant is maybe jealous of you guys. Because he's not sitting there going, let's roll this, and I'm going to decide, we'll decide together based on the die what we do with your taxes. Let's see how much taxes you roll. Yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. talk a little bit about so something else that grew out of your, your musical theater experience is um, now you're also not just scoring for musicals. Yeah, but scoring for other plays that are not musicals, you're doing incidental music or background music. Or- yeah, I and that, that's grown out of my relationship with Jobsite, who asked me to do some stuff for a, a, a production, and I I wrote some music for it, and it's just created a really nice collaborative working ar- uh, arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave me they give me an immense amount of freedom to to score, you know how I how I feel about the, the play, what I mm-hmm. think is it being expressed. So they send you a script, right? I get a script. I, I, I attend some rehearsals. In this regard, I'm hired to come on and write music for Othello, mm-hmm. you know, or something. So I talk with the director a little bit about the direction that we want to go with this music. Like when we did Othello, uh, we were going to sort of try to mix Western um, harmony with Middle Eastern harmony. Okay. Uh, the, the way they were doing Othello was that it was an American military base. It takes place in an American military base in and sort of unnamed Middle Eastern country. Okay. So we so some of the scenes involved some characters who were traditionally, you know, not from the area and characters who were from the area. So we were combining these sort of different harmonies together. For this, for depending on how mixed they were on the stage, this is a scene between a Middle Eastern guy and an American guy. So, can we have some music that brings them together? That kind of stuff. did a play for job site called Edgar and Emily which was um a an imagined fantasy meeting between Edgar Allan Poe and Emily Dickinson and that was an amazingly fun creative project where I got my friend Tom Kersey who plays cello in the orchestra and also uh, everywhere else and was just voted best of the bay classical musician Mm-hmm. Congratulations. It's really wonderful to win a Best of the Bay Award. I have 
I haven't won one yet. Do you guys know really? anybody that has? It's a great feeling, Jeremy. Yeah, I wouldn't know. For anyone listening that has not followed us on Instagram, uh, Ed and I are the recent recipients of a Best of the Bay Award for Best Immersive Podcast. So um, a huge thank you, uh, Jeremy, to bringing it up. But also, we didn't put him up to that, by the way. Uh, but a, a very sincere thank you to Creative Loafing and um, for everybody that's been supporting us. It's it's a really exciting mm-hmm. thing for us, which is part of why we also had Jeremy on, because we know uh, that you've been among the Best of the Bears. I've not been voted one yet, though. You've been nominated tons of times. Repeatedly you need nominated. To win. It's an honor to be nominated, yeah. is what they tell me. Yeah. So um, Edgar and Emily was ta- a collaboration between me and Tom Kersey where we figured it would be really great. The, the way the play was structured was there were some scenes that were just Edgar Allan Poe by himself. It's a two-person play. Uh, some scenes that were just Emily Dickinson by herself. And then there were some scenes where they met each other and and their ideas overlap. Um, So the way we approached this project was Tom was going to compose all the music for Edgar Allan Poe, and I was going to compose all the music for Emily Dickinson. So anytime the director, David Jenkins, had a scene that he needed music for, if it was an Edgar Allan Poe scene, it was all Tom. And if it was an Emily Dickinson scene, it was all me. So we wrote our music separately. We didn't even... We didn't even you like. Didn't even compare notes. Not at all. <laughs> and so then there were several scenes that we needed to combine the things that we had done mm-hmm. together and play them on top of each other. And so that was, you know, sort of in one situation. It was a primarily Emily Dickinson scene. Mm-hmm. So I played my theme, but left space mm-hmm. for Tom. <laughs> played his theme, altered it to fit inside of mine. Mm-hmm. And then there was a scene that was mostly Edgar and Emily made an appearance. And so Tom did his entire thing mm-hmm. and left space for me. And I came in and accompanied it. It's interesting. Like those, you talk about overlapping compositions, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if people are wondering, too, that aren't super familiar with this, we've had Poe come up on a few podcasts. So we have looked into him a little more. We, not that we're experts or anything, but you know, Edgar Allan Poe, Emily Dickinson, they didn't actually ever meet. I don't nope. believe. And that's partly because their lives overlapped maybe by about 15 years. Edgar Allan Poe was born yeah. early 1800s. Yeah. Uh, and Emily Dickinson, I believe mid 1800s. Yeah. Plus she was pretty much spent most of her time indoors. Right. Uh, yeah. They would never have had the opportunity to meet. So in terms of like, just you think of just the overlapping styles also on that kind of that transcendent idea of overlapping musical styles yeah and it was a fun cliff to jump off of like to go ahead and forge a collaboration with somebody where i don't know what he's going to do so what what's the project that you uh you were recently featured one of the shows you worked on recently Mm -hmm. you were you were actually in a feature article in american theater magazine talk a little bit about that yeah yeah, that was a job site production of a play called hedda which is a modernized adaptation of hedda gabler Okay, and uh, takes place in small house. It's four characters and uh, bouncing off of each other, and there's intrigue and there's um, secrets and a, a tragic, explosive ending, and and it's all dialogue. There's no action, and the director wanted music that underscored much of the play. Mm-hmm. 
which at the time was and and I thought maybe would be impossible mm-hmm. because it's it's difficult to integrate pre-recorded music into a live scene and have it right. work every single time unless you choreograph scenes right. to the music tightly timed performance it's a choreographed dance if you want to integrate it you know and if you don't want to time it to the music then the music needs to be live to adjust to the variations that are going to happen like a live in a pit scene. orchestra or something where right. a conductor is paying attention and right but getting a pre-recorded music to match up with an uh, a scene of actors and have the actors lead the scene, not mm-hmm. the music lead the scene. Right. It it's it's impossible. It, it's almost like like creating. You know, you're, we're going to light the show too. We're going to have a sequence of events where a light's going to come on up here and a character's going to enter, and then as they move away from that light, that light's going to fade down, and they're going to walk over to the other side of the stage, and another light's going to come on be when they get there. Okay, you would not program that sequence of lights and then press play at the top of the show and expect your actors. Sorry, you'd have keep, a guy expect your actors booth. to keep up with it. Right. You got a guy running it. Right. So the idea that I created to solve this problem of how much music the director wanted in this play um, was to treat the music like like lights and reimagine the process of composition away from theme development of a theme you know like a melody begins here and it develops over time and harmony comes in to recontextualize it or to shape it that's traditional development of of this kind of music i had to turn it around where the development of the music was just revealing of layers that were already there okay so if we think of every light on the stage if we're doing going to continue on this light analogy every light on the stage is is a, a running loop, right? And we, it's always on. We just don't see it until the guy turns the fader up, brings the light up. Mm-hmm. And that light didn't begin when it started. It was, it was always there. We're just seeing it now for the first time. So development of music becomes, becomes. It sounds like, it sounds like a, a part is beginning because you're hearing it for the first time. But that's not the beginning. It's a loop. And it was written in a way that it has no beginning and no ending. So how many layers of, how many loops did you have for this production? Different ones for different cues. We had, I think, 17 or 18 different cues, like parts of the play that needed music that was two to four to eight minutes long. Um, So I had some cues that used 15, 16 or more layers of music, but you don't hear them all at once. Uh, the challenge was how to make it work inside the technical limitations of most theaters, which do not use programs like Ableton Live, which are really fantastic at turning loops on and off when you need For them. musical performer. Right. right. But they're not going to use Ableton Live, and they never would. There's no reason why a theater company or why anybody would want to follow one performance with two interfaces, mm-hmm. Ableton Live and QLab, which runs all the lights. QLab also can run sound. So how can we make QLab work like Ableton Live? It's not set up to do that. So it, it's basically create 15 or more tracks of loops and then map out a series of programmable fades. 
So the loops are always playing. Right. So what we're doing in QLab is we're stacking all of these tracks on top of each other. So at the beginning of a scene that has music, um, we're starting, say, all 15 tracks at the exact same time. And for people that don't know, a cue obviously is you know a timed thing that happens in a performance. Right. It's a, it's a moment where we need music. So, um, so we're going to start the music with just one track playing by itself. And then another track fades in underneath it. When a character says something ominous, now we have a two-handed piano part. And then another character comes in the scene and these staccato strings come in. And then first two characters leave, and we're just left with the staccato strings by themselves. And then cello comes in. So it's all these layers that if you were to play them all at the same time, it would be this cacophony mess of sound. But what we're doing is we're creating uh, a... And you can stop that. That's pretty much the It'll just loop like that forever. Um, (laughs) But... um, we're just creating this choreographed dance of fader automation um, and reducing it to spacebar presses because that's how QLab operates. Mm-hmm. And QLab is a great program for running lights, for running sound effects. Everything runs through QLab. Character comes on board uh, on the stage, you hit the spacebar, and un- and a hundred things can happen. Light mm-hmm. can come on in a moment that's been programmed. A music cue can start. And then the character says another thing, and you hit the space bar again, and it brings up another loop. And So what you've essentially done with this is you've enabled whoever's running the music to come in or out later if an actor's performance is stretching out a little right. bit. Right. So what it means yep. is, is the, 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 we, we change how music develops. Mm-hmm. By not developing with strong melodies and variations on those themes, we develop just by revealing parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of fits into my philosophy of composing for live theater, which, which we don't even want li- we don't want strong melodies anyway, right. because that pulls focus away from the actors on the stage. Right. Scoring for live theater is, a, uh, is an exercise in restraint. You're just providing atmosphere. If you start scoring really, really, really big stuff underneath everything that's happening like you would in a movie, you're going to overshadow your actors because they're not going to be mic'd anyway, right? So your music's not going to be loud. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be there. It's just going to be providing an emotion. That's all we're doing is informing emotional content. We can do that. call it underscoring when... Underscoring, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we are underscoring emotional content of the scene and just providing sound that sort of echoes those emotions. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for this scene, it was, you know, music that we just heard, it was, it was tense. Characters were like some, some shit was about to go down. Characters <laughs> were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it you know, and um, yeah. And you were some of the other loops that we didn't listen to. Maybe they are more placid or happy, or romantic, like, you know, joyful. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, and so it allows the actors to lead the scene and not regard the music in any way, shape, or form. They are able to focus on their performance, and it allows pre-recorded music to follow 
their performance. Never. Interesting. It's super fascinating, right? And I think, you know, we got pretty technical in this episode. Yeah. But I, but I think that's important to note because of things that are relatable to our listeners, one thing to think about is, you know, a lot of people, music comes in and out of their life either through music soundtracks or they're hearing it on the radio or, they're you know, they're listening to it. But there's this whole world out there beyond the, the casual listener, right? Mm-hmm. In, in both, if you're a musician and you want to just work in music, there's so many avenues to go out there and be creative and continue to evolve and feel challenged and mm-hmm. um, do all these things that make music really interesting other than just writing you know, a song, going to the relative minor, singing a chorus. And, and I think that that's so important. It's so important to do that too, mm-hmm. but to know that there's all of this out here. And I hope, I hope listeners appreciated that, whether you're a musician or you're not. Um, and so, Jeremy, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. We love you. We, we love playing with you. Um, we love hearing you play, and we're looking forward to the next projects. We'll tell everybody where to go and the right. credits as we roll. But yeah, what's coming up? Um, writing a score for a play now at American Stage called Silent Sky, mm-hmm. which is a, a biographical play about um, a 1900s era female astronomer mm-hmm. who uh, discovered. The method that we still use today to calculate the distance between stars. Well, if the name is any indication, it should be pretty easy to write. <laughs> yeah, the character has a has a sister who plays piano in the church, and she's writing a concerto. And so the play requires for bits of this concerto to be in development at different stages throughout the course of the play. Oh, and she's cool. writing it, and the other character, the astronomer, needs to take this. Uh, music and use it as a demonstration for her work talking about frequencies of pulsars and things like that and how they're bouncing off of each other. Um, it sounds like it was written specifically for your mind. It was, to, uh... <laughs> it's really fun. Jeremy, again, thanks for being here, man. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. man. We'll love you. We'll see you soon. All right. You've been listening to Song Divers. Thank you for supporting us and our sponsors and all the great independent music makers out there trying to make their way in the music business these days. Musical bits and pieces we heard in this episode include the Piano Concerto from American Stage's production of Silent Sky, Bows from American Stage's production of Shakespeare's Othello, Whimsy and Horror from Jobsite Theater's production of Emily and Edgar, a demonstration of Jeremy's innovative system of layered musical cues from Jobsite Theater's production of Hedda, and the Overture from Jobsite Theater's production of Steve Martin's Meteor Shower. We also heard the songs Out of Thin Air by Cassandra Rose, produced by Jeremy Douglas, and Carried Away by Matt Haley, also produced by Jeremy. To keep up with all Jeremy's projects, we recommend a well-balanced diet of digital and in-person experiences on Instagram at Florida Bjorkestra, and you can also get more at thefloridabjorkestra.com. Bjorkestra is spelled B-J-O-R-K-E-S-T-R-A, the traditional spelling of Bjorkestra. The improv group, Definitely Not Murderers, can and should be followed on Facebook. You can find them at facebook.com slash D-N-M, musical improv. It's all one word. And keep up with Jeremy's projects in the theater at AmericanStage.org 
and jobsitefeeder.org. You can also find Jeremy Douglas, the man, on Facebook. His photo is half Jeremy, half Abraham Lincoln. He really is one of a kind. Say shut up, Jeremy. Oh, I forgot. This is a different kind of guest today. Mm-hmm. We can say shut up and f*** you and anything we want to this guy. Yeah, this will be marked explicit for sure. Your face is explicit. <laughs> <laughs> Song Divers is a production of Ybor City Records and recorded in the historic Kenwood district of St. Petersburg, Florida.